1: At some point, the United States also has to recognise that they have nuclear weapons. Their nuclear weapons aren't less dangerous than North Korean nuclear weapons.
2: I'm Mary Hassan. Welcome to Deconstructed. What a week history was made. The little rocket man and the mentally deranged dotard finally kissed and made up. An embrace in Singapore and a promise of peace. I want to
3: thank Chairman Kim for taking the first bold step toward a bright new future for his people. Really, he's got a great personality. He's a, you know, funny guy. He's a very smart guy. He's a great negotiator. Uh, loves his people. He loves his country. He wants uh, a lot of good things, and that's why he's doing this. But he, but
1: he's, he's starved them. He's been brutal to them. He still loves his people.
3: Uh, look, he's doing what he's seen done. I mean, you, if you look at it...
2: Look, to be fair, if we look past the two megalomaniacs with freakish hairstyles at the centre of all this, there's actually been lots of welcome talk of denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula, of Kim Jong-un getting rid of his nuclear arsenal. That's around 60 nuclear warheads, by the way. But there's something missing from this whole conversation about disarmament and denuclearization. The fact that the United States itself is sitting on the world's most powerful stockpile of nuclear weapons. When will we be rid of them?
3: We have very clearly taken the position that nuclear weapons are vital to our security. And given that we believe that, it's easy for other countries to believe that as well. It puts us in a very poor position to be lecturing other people on nuclear weapons. We should lead by example.
2: This week, I'll speak to a former US Defence Secretary and a Nobel Peace Laureate about their campaigns to rid the world of nuclear weapons. But what I really wanna ask on today's show is what about America's nukes? And perhaps even more importantly, what about the man who now has the power to launch them? You might say it's absurd to compare the US nuclear weapons stockpile with say North Korea's. The United States after all is a liberal democracy whereas the DPRK is a brutal totalitarian one party state. The problem of course with that argument is that the only country in human history to have ever used nuclear weapons to incinerate its enemies en masse happens to be a liberal democracy. And that liberal democracy happens to be the United States of America.
3: A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. Hiroshima, the first city in history to be atom-bombed into oblivion.
2: On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Of course, that was only the first.
3: Exactly three days after Hiroshima, a B-29 set out for Nagasaki.
2: Hundreds of thousands of innocent people were killed in those two strikes. A nuclear holocaust inflicted from Washington, D.C.
3: The bomb was exploded above the city and in the towering mushroom, Japan could read its doom.
2: Now, you might say, well, that was more than 70 years ago. It's not as if they've nuked anyone since. True, but it's not like they haven't come close either. We all know about the Cold War close calls, the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example. And then there are the episodes we hardly ever mention. You want to talk about North Korean nukes? Well, during the Korean War in the early 1950s, Legendary U.S. General Douglas MacArthur was desperate to drop between 30 and 50 atomic bombs on the Korean peninsula and spread, quote, a belt of radioactive cobalt. Now, admittedly, things have improved on the nuclear front over the decades, but it still always amazed me how the U.S. has set itself up as the world's nuclear policeman.
0: If we and the Soviet leaders take the right steps, we can dramatically shrink The arsenal of the world's nuclear weapons.
2: The end of the Cold War saw US presidents like George H.W. Bush talk a good game on reducing nuclear arsenals. And let's be clear, there were reductions. But it wasn't always one way traffic. And the actions of US administrations on nuclear disarmament haven't always matched the rhetoric. Take Nobel Peace Laureate Barack Obama.
0: So today, I state clearly and with conviction. America's commitment to seek the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons.
2: That was Obama just four months after becoming president in 2009. The same Obama who then put the US on course to spend around a trillion dollars upgrading its nuclear arsenal over the next three decades, including new funding for a new class of ballistic missile submarine, a new stealth bomber and a new nuclear armed cruise missile. Thanks, Barack. And since january 2017 the debate over that expanded modernized nuclear arsenal has taken a new and ominous turn because these are now not just the world's worst weapons but they're now in the hands of perhaps the world's most reckless and unstable leader and no i'm not talking about kim
0: you don't want to say take everything off the table because no, you're nuclear. a bad negotiator if you do just that. nuclear look nuclear should be off the table But would there be a time when it could be used? Possibly. Okay, the trouble is when you said that... Three times he asked about the use of nuclear weapons. Mm. Three times he asked, at one point, if we have them, why can't we use them?
2: If Donald J. Trump having his finger on the nuclear button and demanding a tenfold increase in U.S. nukes, by the way doesn't make you want to think again about the dangers of a US nuclear weapon stockpile, about the huge threat that US nuclear bombs pose to world peace and to the future of all of humanity, then nothing will. At the beginning of this year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists suggested the world had moved closer to an existential catastrophe by moving their famous symbolic doomsday clock to two minutes away from midnight, a 30-second jump from last year and the closest the planet has been to midnight since 1953. Oh, and they didn't make any bones about why they did it.
0: We considered at length the lack of predictability in how the United States is thinking about the future and future use of its own nuclear weapons an unpredictability that it is embodied in statements and tweets by the president of the United States.
2: Yet just a few weeks later, the Trump administration released a new nuclear posture review document, which basically lowers the bar for nuclear war. Yeah, lowers it in two key ways. Number one, for the first time, the Trump administration wants the United States to be able to retaliate with a nuclear strike against a non-nuclear and perhaps even non-military attack on US infrastructure, even a cyber attack, perhaps. Yeah, a nuclear strike that could kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Number two, Trump's nuclear posture review document calls for the development of a new generation of so-called low yield nuclear weapons. And guess what they do? They make it easier to launch a nuclear war because they're low yield. They only kill a few hundred thousand, not a few million. They're for the battlefield, not for wiping out entire cities. These low yield nukes, in the words of one retired senior army officer, could provide Trump and his successors with a kind of gateway drug to nuclear war. And yet, despite all that, this is still a subject that gets so little attention. When are our politicians, when are the folks on cable news going to start talking about any of this? It's the nuclear elephant in the room. We're petrified by North Korea's nukes. We obsess over Iran's hypothetical nukes. We worry about the prospect of a nuclear conflict between India and Pakistan. We don't like the idea of Vladimir Putin having nukes. But what about the very real and present danger posed to all of humanity by America's 6,500 nuclear warheads? And what about the fact that those nukes, which could destroy the world several times over, make this planet uninhabitable, could be launched in a matter of minutes without congressional approval or Pentagon authorization by a president whose name is Donald J. Trump. My first guest today is a former U.S. Secretary of Defense. William Perry ran the Pentagon under Bill Clinton. He also served in Jimmy Carter's Pentagon during the Cold War. He's one of the few former U.S. officials to have negotiated with North Korea. And since leaving office, he's actually committed himself to campaigning against the nuclear weapons that he was once in charge of. William Perry, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. I'm happy to. Uh, It's more than 10 years since you and former secretaries of state George Shultz and Henry Kissinger and former Senator Sam Nunn wrote your now famous joint op-ed in the Wall Street Journal headlined, A World Free of Nuclear Weapons. More than a decade later, not only do you have North Korea now as a ninth country to possess nukes, but also your own country, the United States, is modernizing and expanding its nuclear arsenal, building a new generation of low-yield nukes. Is the world, including the United States, heading in the wrong direction on nuclear weapons, in your view?
3: Yes, it is. We're actually going backwards now. For a few years after we wrote our op-ed, there was a significant improvement, maybe three or four years. But for the last six or seven years, we've been going in exactly the wrong direction.
2: Is there a good reason for the United States to still possess, in your view, in 2018, a stockpile of around, I think, six and a half thousand nuclear warheads, when according to a new study out this week, even a hundred nukes would be enough to destroy the entire planet and end the human race.
3: The number of nuclear weapons we have and that the Russia has are of substantial overkill, uh, maybe by a factor of a hundred. And yet both we and Russia rebuilding the Cold War nuclear arsenal now at an enormous cost and at great danger.
2: Do you think their risk of accidentally going to nuclear war is increased given you have a personality like Donald J. Trump now with his finger on the button? He's not exactly the most uh, reliable or sober of figures when it comes to such issues.
3: Actually, my concern about either the United States or Russia accidentally starting a war is it really irrespective of who the president is. It's, it's the system itself is set up so that it's possible for mistakes to be made that, that could go all the way to a war. For example, we have a, still have the possibility of a false alarm setting off, off a nuclear war. We had three of those during the Cold War. And in each case, we were, managed to stop just before the decision to launch. But it was a v- very close call in uh, at least one of those cases that could have happened even with the president with a good temperament and a good and a good background
2: do you think that the united states uh, possessing this massive stockpile of warheads and being the only country in history to actually use nuclear weapons makes it difficult for other countries not just russia but countries like north korea or iran to take seriously lectures from U.S. presidents about the need for nuclear disarmament, about the threat posed by nuclear weapons. Some would say it's hypocritical for the U.S. to be trying to be the nuclear policeman. Where do you stand on that?
3: Well, we have very clearly taken the position that nuclear weapons are vital to our security. And given that we believe that, it's easy for other countries to believe that as well. So no, it puts us in a very poor position to be lecturing other people on nuclear weapons. We should lead by example.
2: And on North Korea... You are one of the few former senior U.S. officials to meet and negotiate with North Korean officials. Back in 1999, I believe, almost a decade ago, when you were Bill Clinton's— shortly after you were Bill Clinton's defense secretary, uh, you went to Pyongyang to talk denuclearization. And we know how that worked out. Earlier this year, you said you had, quote, a high degree of skepticism that North Korea will really negotiate away the nuclear arsenal it now has— because you said they see it as a form of regime survival. Did anything you saw or heard earlier this week in Singapore with that historic meeting between Kim and Donald Trump, did, that, did anything change your mind? Do you think North Korea is now about to give up its nukes, as Trump claims?
3: Well, I was happy for the meeting. I was happy to see the leaders talking to each other instead of shouting insults at each other, because when the shouting insult mode, that increases the likelihood of some kind of a blundering into a war. So we're not in that mode right now of blundering into a war. But there's nothing that hap- was said at the meeting in Singapore, which leads me to believe we've made substantial progress towards denuclearization.
2: What do you think would have to happen to make that kind of substantial progress?
3: There has to be an explicit process agreed upon and started for actually dismantling the, the nuclear weapons. So I'm not critical of the Singapore meeting. I think it was a useful step but it's a very, we're very far short of having a process underway for actually
2: seeing the denuclearization begin. And when Donald Trump says in a tweet upon his return that North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat, that's just not true, is it? That's a lie.
3: No, it's not true. I, I agree with him that the threat is, re- the probability of, of uh, is reduced that North Korea might use those nuclear weapons, but they still can
2: and they still might. When it comes to nuclear weapons, the U.S. president and a lot of people don't realize this in in the United States, the U.S. president is basically a dictator. He can fire them in a matter of minutes, and no defense secretary, no general can stop him. Congress has no say. Do you think the law should be changed so that the president has to get explicit congressional approval before giving the order to launch a nuclear first strike?
3: Uh, Yes, I do. I want to be clear, though, that I think that is the case when it is a first strike of nuclear weapons, It's a different situation if we've been attacked by nuclear weapons.
2: Yes. But on a first strike, you think Congress should have a say, but the president should be able to do it on his own.
3: I do do believe so, yes. The president should not be able to do it on his own, regardless of who the president is. How did you end up
2: at this place where you, a former defense secretary of the United States of America, is campaigning against nuclear weapons? That's kind of unusual, I think it's fair to say.
3: I suppose it's because I know so much about them. (laughs) The reason I think people are not much concerned about nuclear weapons is really because of their lack of knowledge of what the dangers really are. I understand fully what the dangers are, and what I'm doing is trying to acquaint other people with those dangers. Whatever benefits we may get from them, in my mind, are erased.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
3: by the possibility of a nuclear catastrophe so great that it ends our civilization.
0: Talking of
2: ending our civilization, the symbolic doomsday clock this year stands at two minutes to midnight, signaling the end of the world might be near. Uh, How close do you think our world is to a nuclear apocalypse?
3: I think we're very close to some sort of a nuclear catastrophe. I think it's greater now than during the Cold War. Oh, wow. There are different kinds of catastrophes. The most serious one being a general exchange between the United States and Russia. I don't think that's highly likely at all. But the other possibilities, which is a nuclear terror attack, a regional nuclear war between India and Pakistan, for example, I put those as reasonably high probability. And in the case of the India-Pakistan, we're not talking about a small nuclear war. We're talking about each of those countries has... Well, over a hundred nuclear weapons, so this could be quite a catastrophic
2: war and one last question, what do you think the chances are of a nuclear weapons free
3: world in our lifetimes not in, not in my lifetime we 're very far from that right now've my I believe we 've moved backwards in the last ten years in regard to that. but what we can focus on are reducing the number of nuclear weapons and more importantly, taking the actions that the lower the danger of one of these accidents or catastrophes happening. People don't understand the danger, and because they don't understand the danger, we don't have the political will to take
2: those actions. William Perry, thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. You're very welcome. That was former Defence Secretary William Perry. He says that it's just not realistic to believe that the United States, Russia or others will give up all their nuclear weapons anytime soon. My next guest, though, has devoted her career to trying to make sure that happens. Beatrice Finn is the director of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, or ICAN, which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. Beatrice Finn, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Uh, Beatrice, you've said in the past that, quote, any nuclear weapon anywhere possessed by any nation is an unacceptable threat to all nations. So how big a threat to world peace to all nations do you think America's stockpile of six and a half thousand nuclear weapons is? Because the United States seems to give itself a pass when it comes to nukes.
1: This is exactly the problem. We seem to have different rules for different countries. Uh, some countries' nuclear weapons are dangerous, where others are just reasonable and sane. But there are no reasonable and sane nuclear weapons. Each one of the nuclear weapons that exists today is a potential humanitarian disaster. And not just um, because they will intentionally be used, but also in case it's an accident or misunderstanding. So the yeah. more nuclear weapons we have, the more dangerous they are.
2: And not just more, but also who are the people in charge of them? You've rather bluntly and perhaps undiplomatically called Donald Trump a moron on Twitter, (laughs) which I'm sure many people wouldn't disagree with that assessment. Do you think he understands the sheer destructive power of nuclear weapons or is it all a game to him?
1: We don't know, really, if he knows anything about nuclear weapons. Some of his comments from the summit in Singapore shows that he perhaps doesn't. We shouldn't have these weapons that are just um, could end the world at the whims of a leader. No one should have that responsibility.
2: You've said in the past you worry about, quote, reckless leaders who could get us all killed. Were you thinking of the U.S. president when you
1: said that? One of them, of course. There are nine countries that have nuclear weapons. And obviously, the United States has some of most of them uh, together with Russia. And uh, he can use them on his own authorization. No one can stop him if he wants to use them. That's really dangerous. But someone who is quite unpredictable uh, seems to take offense. I'm just thinking about the false alarm in Hawaii, for example.
2: The alert that sent a wave of fear across Hawaii was sent by an employee who thought the threat was real.
1: What would he have done if that false alarm had gone to him? Would he have immediately authorized the use of nuclear weapons? Would he have gone to war with North Korea? So we don't have faith
2: in Donald Trump necessarily to do the right thing or the correct thing when it comes to nukes. But surely as someone who campaigns for the abolition of nuclear weapons, you must have welcomed the summit in Singapore on Tuesday morning. Trump and Kim talking denuclearization might only be a first shaky step in a very long process, but it's a good first step, isn't it? No matter how much we may justifiably lack faith in both Trump and Kim.
1: Absolutely. I think that anything that isn't threatening to start nuclear war is an improvement then, of course, we still haven't solved some of the outstanding problems. And I hope that there won't be a big backlash when we get into the detailed negotiations and realize that we are qu- they are still quite far apart with each other on what denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula means. And at some point, the United States also has to recognize that they have nuclear weapons. Their nuclear weapons aren't less dangerous than North Korean nuclear weapons.
2: That's very true. Uh, One of the main goals of your organisation, ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, is to lobby the nations of the world to sign up to the Treaty on the Prohibition on Nuclear Weapons. Explain what that treaty does and why you think it's so important.
1: This treaty tries to treat nuclear weapons the same as we've treated other weapons of mass destruction and other weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons. But we kind of forgot to ban nuclear weapons before. And we almost had like an... Apartheid regime in nuclear weapons law. Five countries were allowed to have them where the rest of the world weren't. We had different laws for different countries. Hmm. And that does not work long term. It's it, it just doesn't it's not a sustainable. Well, now we legal have nine
2: Now we have nine nuclear weapons states, don't we?
1: Exactly. And and now, you know, we saw signs of, you know, all North Korea being welcomed into the club. Hmm which I think is very dangerous. So this treaty is trying to change that. It prohibits nuclear weapons for everyone.
2: But here's the thing. You say this treaty bans nuclear weapons for everyone, but how can it actually do that in reality when none of the nuclear-armed states have shown any kind of support for that treaty? In fact, the United States, like Russia, has shown explicit opposition to the treaty.
1: Yeah, it doesn't apply to them unless they sign it, of course. But, you know, the good thing with international law is that it has an impact also on the states that haven't signed it. The United States, Russia, China haven't signed the landmines treaty, yet they don't use landmines anymore. Uh, the United States has even said that we will follow 20 years after the treaty was in place. So it, it shows that they they do have an impact, these treaties, even if not all states sign on to them.
2: How many countries have signed the treaty so far?
1: 59.
2: In over how long a period of time? Um,
1: six, seven months. So we're working wow. on getting it up. It's it's, it's not so fast work. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's good work. Um, it's hard to get countries
2: to sign up to anything, especially no more war or nuclear uh, war. And um, do you think the nuclear posture review document that the Trump administration published earlier this year has lowered the bar for nuclear war? Has it made it easier, in your view, for Trump to deploy so-called low-yield nuclear weapons?
1: Yes, uh, I mean these weapons are not in in. Um, uh, operation yet because they commission them now and they're going to start investing in producing these weapons. But that that they they want to develop a new weapon that is smaller and what they call more usable, which will be mm. more likely more to be usable. used in Girl, in scary. in nuclear in nuclear war, and somehow that would deter more. Uh, but it doesn't really work like that. I mean, if if Russia would use a small nuclear weapon on the United States, would the United States back off? And and when a missile comes flying, how do you know it's low yield or not? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. That's a very good point. And they also lower the the policy for when they can use nuclear weapons, like in response to cyber attack. It's extremely dangerous, and it does increase the likelihood that nuclear weapons will be used. What do you say
2: to your critics who say that nuclear weapons, for all their dangers and all their downsides, have helped maintain balance and order in the world? They have helped prevent small wars from becoming big wars, Uh, you know, mutually assured destruction and all the rest of that.
1: It's really hard to prove. You can debate this for, for a long time, of course. It's an academic theory. But what is reality is that we know what happens when nuclear weapons are used. And of course, you know, deterrence might work in some cases. I mean, I could bury landmines in my garden and say it deters burglars. (laughs) Doesn't make it a good idea. Because when it fails, (laughs) it fails really, really badly.
2: And what about those of your critics who say, look, your goals are noble, they're laudable, but that you're naive. It's just never going to happen. The complete elimination of nuclear weapons in a world as divided and conflicted as this one is just a fantasy.
1: Well, we've done huge things, huge accomplishments in the world. Um, I mean, we developed human rights. Uh, we ended slavery, women got the right to vote. we We make progress as a world community. There were things that we did uh, fifty years ago that are unacceptable today. I mean, just I mean, we like to think about it as smoking. Do you remember? It wasn't that long ago where people just smoked inside, in offices, in restaurants, and then we banned it inside. We didn't make all the smokers stop immediately, but we banned it inside. And now, just very quickly afterward, it would—it seems completely unacceptable. Can you imagine we did that? We don't do that anymore. It can be the same with nuclear weapons. We used to have chemical weapons.
2: On that note, since you've raised the issue of smoking and you've raised the issue of chemical weapons, both things have been delegitimized. I think is what you're saying. Mm. You know, we now look at smoking as something horrific, especially around children indoors, etc. We look at chemical weapons in the field of warfare as something which is a, you know, a band, it's beyond the pale, uh, mm. it's evil. How do we get people, how practically do we get people, governments, the world, to see nuclear weapons as something equally evil? immoral, beyond the pale?
1: Well, we get them to join the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It starts with the law, but it it is also a cultural shift. And for us, I mean, we promoted this treaty and we chose this as a strategy because we think that a treaty and the law is a really also effective way of changing the culture, hacking the culture in a way. We need to change perception about this weapon from something that is associated with power and prestige to something that is horrific and nobody wants to be connected to.
2: If you had to predict which of the nine nuclear armed states would be the first to join up to your treaty on a prohibition on nuclear weapons, which one do you think it would be?
1: I think we could get North Korea if it's a part of, uh, you know, South Korea joining it and, and part of a peace deal in the it's Korean kind of depressing
2: yet. that I say nine and you say North Korea, not kind of France or the UK or any of the Western democracies. Yeah.
1: Well, I think I mean wow. I think France might be the last one. They really. Love their nuclear weapons. I think, you know what? It
2: gives them a prestige and status that they feel they've lost, I suspect. The UK. So does the UK. The
1: UK could join it. We have, uh, we have a very strong public opinion in the UK. We have a Scottish national context where they don't want the nuclear weapons there. And there is no other place for the UK to put and it. And there's an opposition leader the in the weapons. UK,
2: Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, who is very anti-nuclear.
1: Absolutely. The UK. I think the United States does not need nuclear weapons. It is the biggest military power in the world. There is no need To have these weapons for the United States.
2: Can I ask a personal question? How did you end up as director of ICANN, this campaign to ban nuclear weapons, dedicating your career, your life to this pretty unique, utopian goal of ridding the world of nukes? How did that happen?
1: You know, I was really into climate change, but that felt really difficult. So this felt felt a little bit <laughs> easier.
2: <laughs> Banning—that's how bad the climate change challenge is. You'd no, rather try and ban nukes. Okay. For
1: me, it was just really—it was kind of an accident to get into this. Um, I was interested in international issues, and someone asked me if I wanted to do an internship in nuclear weapons. I was like, huh? "Nuclear weapons—they still exist." <laughs> but I got really into it when when I came to see it as more of a—it's an issue of justice and equality rather than a specific weapon. It, this is a Oppression method. A small group of states have just taken the power to oppress the rest of the world because they have a bigger bomb and it's they are allowed to have it, but nobody else want, has it. So for us, it's so much true. like ending apartheid, ending slavery, uh, having women that have the right to vote. It's a fight for equality and justice.
2: That is a very interesting way to present it. I've never heard it presented like that before. In your Nobel Prize acceptance speech last year, you said that we have avoided nuclear war not through prudent leadership, but good fortune. Sooner or later, if we fail to act, our luck will run out. How much luck do you think we have left?
1: You know, we talk about it a little bit. You can walk a tightrope safely for a few minutes, but perhaps not for 75 years. It's at some point, given the amount of accidents and near misses and just statistics, there is a risk that they will be used. The risk is higher than zero, Always. It means that given enough time, they will be used. We don't know when. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in the next five years. But if we keep them forever, they will be used.
2: Beatrice Finn, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed.
1: Thank you very much.
2: That was Beatrice Finn, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. Lital Molard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every Friday. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, do email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week.
0: losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.